Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading figures from the world of sustainability and explore the sustainability agenda in marketing and strategy, technology, innovation, investment and finance. We look at the latest thinking, what's working and the future and evolution of the sustainability agenda. I'm very pleased today to welcome Professor Michael Mann to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Michael is a Distinguished Professor of Atmospheric Science and Director of the Earth System Science Centre at Pennsylvania State University. Climatologist and geophysicist, he's a leading contributor to the IPCC and is widely regarded as one of the world's leading climate scientists. His work has been pivotal in advancing our understanding of humanity's influence on global temperature, notably through the famous hockey stick graph outlining the Earth's temperature over the last millennium. Thank you very much, Michael, for taking the time to speak to the Sustainability Agenda podcast today. Uh, thank you. It's great to be with you. So can you tell me a little bit about your background, Michael, and tell me how did you get interested in climate science? Yeah, so um, I uh, started out um, in college. I was a physics and applied math uh, major, and I thought I was going to go off and study theoretical physics. I went off to Yale University um, uh, and began working on a PhD in physics. And then a few years into it, I realized that um, my interests uh, lay elsewhere. Uh, I wasn't excited uh, enough about the project that I was working on um, in the physics department, and I ended up talking to other folks uh, at the university. Uh, ended up talking to a professor named Barry Saltzman, who was using physics and math to model Earth uh, to model uh, Earth's climate, and that sounded fascinating to me. I told him I was uh, potentially interested in working with him, um, and one thing led to another, and I ended up doing my PhD in climate modeling and climate science, um, and uh, have gone uh, into that field as a career. Right. I guess at that stage you had no idea how heated an area in more ways than one that it would turn out to be. Or, yeah, this or, or, was uh, yeah, this was the um, late. Uh, 1980s, actually the early 1990s when I went, um, uh, started working in the area of climate science. And uh, indeed, uh, that ended up um, being uh, a far more contentious area of science than I could have possibly realized at the time that I made that decision. Yes, I mean, just one of the statements you hear again and again is 97% of climate scientists agree, you know, in one way or another, humans are heating the planet. What does that actually mean? And I'm just wondering, you know, we don't necessarily hear that when people are talking about other aspects of science. How important is that? And, and yeah, can you just unpack that a little bit? Yeah, well, you know, I think the reason that we, we do hear that statistic is uh, other areas of science... Um, you know, there's a similar level of scientific consensus, but somehow we don't see the same sort of assault on the science, the same degree of questioning of the science um, that we see in the case of climate change. And so I think the point of uh, those studies that have uh, demonstrated that there is this very strong uh, degree of consensus, anywhere from 97 to 99 percent, depending on the particular uh, study, uh, I think the point uh, there is that um, indeed there's as strong uh, consensus when it comes to human-caused climate change as there is uh, with regard to gravity. <laughs> uh, but uh, we don't have gravity deniers, uh, or at least we don't have too many of them. And uh, the real issue here is that the findings of climate science 
have come into conflict with uh, powerful special interests. And uh, any time that that's happened, any time the findings of science have found themselves on a collision course with powerful uh, vested interests, we have seen an effort um, by those interests to discredit the science. We saw that with tobacco, we saw that with acid rain and ozone depletion, uh, and we see that now today um, in the case of human-caused climate change. Right. Now, uh, what, what, what do you think is the most compelling evidence, or uh, compelling evidence, probably the wrong way of putting it, the evidence the planet is heating? Every day I see headlines somewhere saying, actually, it's cooling, actually, it stopped heating uh, X months ago, X years ago, actually, it's in a pause, the next ice age is upon us, and things like that. Um, right. Again, so what, what, what would you say is the strongest evidence that the, that the planet is heating? On yeah, it, well... Yeah. Yeah, we do indeed, uh, unfortunately, live in the world of fake news and alternative facts, and the web is littered with them. Uh, again, uh, as I said, powerful uh, vested interests. The fossil fuel industry uh, groups have spent literally um, tens of millions of dollars investing in this massive misinformation campaign and, and polluting our public discourse. And so you can go on the web or you can listen to some talking head on a radio show or watch Fox News for that matter or read the editorial pages of the Wall Street Journal and you will be bombarded by um, an alternative set of facts that are nonsensical. Uh, the reality is that uh, we have now broken the record for all-time warmth three consecutive years, 2014, then 2015, and then 2016, the warmest year on record. If you look at the actual data, um, we are uh, on a course of uh, continued warming at uh, a rate of about two degrees Celsius, uh, three and a half Fahrenheit per century. Um, and we are right where the models say that we should expect to be given the amount of carbon that we've burned and put into the atmosphere. Um, so the most compelling evidence uh, is the real evidence. The real facts are that um, thermometer records demonstrate that uh, the warming of the Earth continues apace. Anything you've heard about an ice age, a pause, uh, the globe is cooling, that's fake news. It's literally fake news. There's no factual basis whatsoever. And yet it's become so much of a part of our discourse, uh, much in the way that fake news we now know infected the political uh, campaign uh, in the last presidential election, it's infected our, our public discourse over climate change. But let me um, actually point this out. Uh, the most compelling evidence um, uh, today is no longer the data um, or the fact that the, the simulations agree well with the data. Um, it's the fact that we can see the impacts of climate change now playing out in real time. The impacts have become so great that we can literally now see in record-breaking floods and heat waves and droughts um, the, the impact that climate change is now having on our everyday lives. And uh, we unfortunately have, uh, with the, the latest disaster of Hurricane Harvey um, and the unprecedented flooding of Houston, the latest example of an event that was made more extreme, climate change didn't cause Hurricane uh, Harvey, it probably would have happened anyway, um, but it made it worse. Six, half a foot of sea level rise meant we had a worse uh, 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 storm surge and, and, and more coastal flooding. Um, uh, one degree rise um, Celsius in 
uh, ocean surface temperatures in the Gulf meant there was more moisture in the atmosphere and more potential for flooding rainfall, which we saw. It means that there was potential for greater intensification of the storm. And we saw this storm intensify at a near record pace as it grew from barely a tropical storm to a cat category four monster as it made landfall over the course of a day and a half. Right, right. I mean, that's yeah, a, a very timely uh, and uh, tragic uh, uh, story there. Um, to what extent you talked about the, shall we say, the, 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 the temperature being a, a degree warmer and so forth. Uh, temperature is volatile, isn't it? I, I guess at any point, you know, it could just be higher or lower. What, what for you is uh, makes you feel so strong that it's because the kind of underlying increase in the averages rather than, you know, to, yesterday, it just happened to hit on a day which is a very hot day, you know, or, or very, you know, that kind of thinking. Yeah. Yeah. So sea surface temperatures don't change uh, uh, so rapidly. Right. They, they change fairly slowly. And uh, and the Gulf um, this entire summer has been uh, has, uh, has exhibited anomalous warmth and not just at the surface, but there's a very deep layer of warm water, and that's important uh, for a hurricane because hurricanes churn up the water, and if you've got cold water beneath, it will uh, come to the surface and dampen the hurricane. But in this case, there's no cold water. Um, there's a very deep layer of warm water, um, and that's part of what uh, kept that storm so strong for so long. Um, so sea surface temperatures don't vary abruptly. They're not like, you know, the temperature... Uh, locally in whatever town we live that fluctuates, you know, from day to day fairly uh, dramatically. Um, uh, ocean surface temperatures are much smoother and ocean heat content varies even more smoothly. It, it really averages out the day-to-day -day fluctuations in weather when you look at a quantity like the, the heat content of the upper ocean. And um, the question of whether uh, this could be natural or, you know, why we know that it's human caused. If you take uh, state-of-the-art climate models and you subject them only to natural factors like changes in uh, the brightness of the sun and uh, volcanic eruptions, which can cool the planet for a few years at a time when they happen, um, if you put just the natural factors into the models, they tell us that the Earth should have actually cooled slightly over the last half century. But instead, of course, it's warmed uh, dramatically. And it's only when we include the human effect of increasing greenhouse gas concentrations from fossil fuel burning and other uh, activities that we can explain the warming that we've seen. Right. Because that's the question I just wanted to get out of the way as well. You hear again, periods of warming before, of course, climate changes. It's that's by definition. So again, what for, just to get it on here, what what is your uh, answer to the argument, I guess, that you know, uh, evidence for you that global warming is man-made and driven by uh, our recent increases in CO2? Yeah, it's not just the fact that uh, the, the rate of warming that we've seen over the past uh, century is unprecedented as far back as we can go. And there are now uh, reasonably reliable estimates that go many thousands of years back in time. Um, and they show there's, there's just no analog uh, for the, the rate of warming that we see today. Um, but it's that combined with the fact that uh, the greenhouse effect is such fundamental physics that we literally wouldn't be able to explain why Venus is as warm as it is, uh, why Mars is an icy planet, or why the Earth 
isn't, isn't a frozen planet uh, without the greenhouse effect. Uh, without the natural greenhouse effect, the Earth would be a frozen planet. There probably wouldn't be life on Earth. And so there's no question about the greenhouse effect. And there's no question we're increasing it because we have irrefutable measurements of CO2 um, as it builds up in the atmosphere. And we know where it's, where it's coming from as well. There is an isotopic fingerprint, which is to say, you can look at the isotopes of the oxygen atom in the CO2 molecules that are building up in the atmosphere. And if the CO2 were natural, it would have one isotopic signature. If it were due to the burning of fossil fuels, it would have a different isotopic signature. So we actually have a fingerprint. We've convicted the, um, the culprit, uh, CO2. Uh, so there is literally no way that we could understand either the climate of the Earth, how the climate of the Earth is now changing, or even the climates of other planets in our solar system, um, if we were wrong on the science. Uh, it's, you know, as Carl Sagan once famously said, um, uh, extraordinary claims uh, require extraordinary evidence. And to claim that the Earth isn't warming and that it's not caused by human activity uh, would be one of the most extraordinary of scientific claims. Um, and of course, there's no evidence to support that contention. Yet, we do hear uh, such viewpoints uh, voiced in our public discourse because of, you know, as I referred to earlier, the, the pollution of our public discourse by fossil fuel interests looking to confuse the public, right. just like the tobacco industry did um, in decades past, um, trying to hide the effects of their product. So what impact is this denialism having, do you think? Well, it has had a huge impact. It has um, incurred a huge cost, uh, literally trillions of dollars of damage that have already been done by climate change, uh, by extreme events made more uh, extreme by climate change. Trillions of dollars of damage have been done. Uh, to our economy, many lives have been lost. Um, uh, and if we had acted on this problem, when we knew that the problem existed, which was literally decades ago, um, one of the scandalous um, re uh, realizations um, uh, in, uh, over the past uh, few years is that ExxonMobil, in their own internal research back in the 1970s, their own scientists are on record as saying, you know, we are warming the planet and the impacts of continued burning of fossil fuels. This is quoting from an ExxonMobil internal document from the 1970s. The impacts could be catastrophic. So ExxonMobil knew back in the 1970s that their, the continued burning of fossil fuels was having a catastrophic impact on the planet. And instead of owning up to that and engaging in good faith to find a way to phase out, to transition our energy systems to renewable energy, um, they doubled down and spent tens of millions of dollars investing in the best funded misinformation campaign of all time. Right, that's terrible, terrible. Um, and what, what, um, how bad is the scenario do you think at the moment in terms of the the outcome the implications we talked about extreme weather there are you know various other uh, extreme and and, and uh, frightening uh, scenarios and there's food insecurity water insecurity 
and you know a picture of, of a tremendous scale of change that would be required to adjust to a, a climate with you know an increase in, in a couple of degrees how, how do you weigh it weigh up the 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 uh this whole thing yeah, there's no question. Um, the impacts of climate change are already here, and they're already um, you know, profound and, and damaging. And uh, we need no further evidence than what has transpired in Houston over the last week. Um, that storm was made worse by climate change in, in several different ways. And that means there was greater loss of life and more damage done because of climate change. Um, so we're bearing the brunt. We're bearing the costs of this problem right now. Um, if we were to rapidly transition away from a fossil fuel uh, energy economy towards a renewable energy economy um, uh, in, in a way that can be done, we have the technology to do it. It's just a matter of putting the right incentives in place. If we were to do that, if all the governments of the world were to commit to that, we could prevent uh, a truly disastrous planetary warming of uh, two degrees Celsius, three and a half Fahrenheit. That's the sort of level of warming where, you know, those scientists who study the impacts of climate change will tell you we see the worst things happen. Uh, we're more than halfway there, and we will you know, breach that uh, two degrees Celsius dangerous limit of warming um, if we continue with business as usual for another decade. Um, we really have to turn that curve around. The good news is that emissions, global carbon emissions, have been flat over the past few years. And that can be attributed to the, the rapid ramp up in renewable energy. We really are seeing that transition underway. We're seeing an exponential increase in um, the, the use uh, of, of renewable energy. And it's already making a difference. We, we've, we've, um, we've flattened the curve, but that's not enough. We've got to bring those emissions now down towards zero if we're going to prevent CO2 from continuing to uh, accumulate in the atmosphere. So we've got a lot of work to do, but there are some reasons uh, for cautious optimism that we're starting to turn the corner in time. Right. So what, uh, uh, what, what do you believe, uh, what are the prospects for negative emissions technologies? And if I understand correctly, some of the uh, IPCC and, and, and various models do incorporate reasonably optimistic viewpoints on technologies, carbon capture and other technologies that will have an impact. Um, how, how optimistic are you about technologies, uh, maybe geoengineering? Just if we could talk briefly about some of, the, some of the things that you think might have most prospect. Yeah, so, um, you know, I, I wouldn't put too much stock in those IPCC scenarios. So the IPCC will be the first to tell you that they are storylines. They're not predictions. They're just what-ifs. And it is true that a number of their scenarios, their scenario that stabilizes warming below 2 degrees Celsius, happens to allow carbon emissions to persist for some time. And if you do that, then it turns out You've got a carbon debt, and the only way to basically um, erase that debt is for negative emissions, technology literally that can suck the CO2 back out of the atmosphere. That technology is not necessary if we turn the corner fast enough with our emissions. So I wouldn't put too much stock in, in those scenarios, nor would I put stock in the claim that we need negative emissions if we are to avoid warming uh, the planet by more than two degrees. That's only given 
certain scenarios envisioned by the IPCC. There are many energy uh, experts out there who will tell you that uh, we can see a much more rapid um, move away from fossil fuel energy than the IPCC scenarios envision. Uh, but you asked about something else as well, which is geoengineering. Um, um, now, the, the sort of, I suppose, the, uh, the mildest form of geoengineering is technology to suck the CO2 back out of the atmosphere. We're, we're manipulating the planet in a way, but we're sort of trying to solve the problem at its source. We're, we're taking the CO2 back out. We're trying to get the genie back, back, back in the bottle, and it's not easy to do. You're fighting the laws of thermodynamics and you're fighting the laws of economics, but it can be done. Um, but then, beyond that, uh, there are other forms of so-called geoengineering that have been described and proposed that are more troubling because rather than solving the problem at its source, they try a cover-up. It's sort of like um, if you've got a smelly room using an air freshener to cover up the smell. Um, that's sort of what some of these other geoengineering uh, approaches are doing. They're allowing the CO2 to continue to build up in the atmosphere and the warming effect of that CO2, and that CO2 is acidifying the oceans and killing off coral reefs. But the idea is, well, we'll shoot particles up into the stratosphere, and we'll mimic the way a volcano cools the surface of the Earth. A big volcanic eruption can cool the Earth for a couple of years. So we can sort of mimic that by shooting particles up into the stratosphere, but um, as soon as you start looking at the potential unintended consequences of those sorts of actions, and this is true for just about all of the geoengineering schemes that have been proposed, um, the principle of unintended consequence really uh, rears its head. And we could easily end up doing even more damage than you know, if we had not intervened at all. So the only real safe way of solving the problem is by stopping the CO2 buildup. The easiest way to do that is to stop burning carbon if, you know, we find that we need a stopgap solution, that we've burned too much carbon, we've exceeded our budget, our carbon budget, for keeping the planet under a dangerous two degrees Celsius warming, then maybe we will have to be looking at some of this uh, uh, CO2 um, you know, sequestration uh, technology, removing the CO2 back out, uh, from the atmosphere. That's much safer than any other geoengineering scheme, but it would be really expensive. Now, here's the rub. While that would be really expensive, what would be even more expensive would be to allow dangerous warming to happen. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and you, you, you've pinpointed uh, the the importance of the fossil fuel industry um, here. What else can? Uh, w w let me just put this another way. Uh, so, what? 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 I mean, the, the political climate in America has changed dramatically. Um, what? What is the scenario that you see the most likely scenario that will bring us to a solution here, Michael? Yeah, so the political climate has indeed uh, sh shifted. Uh, before the election, back in September, uh, I co-authored a book called The Madhouse Effect, how climate change denial is uh, threatening our planet, destroying our politics, and driving us crazy. Now, this was before Trump was elected, um, and we were already dealing with you know, congressional um, leaders who deny the reality of climate change and have blocked legislation to deal with the problem. Obviously, now... 
with the election of Donald Trump, we find ourselves uh, in an even worse position where the chief executive is a climate change denier and an apologist for fossil fuel interests who is appointed to key levels of his cabinet, um, climate change deniers and fossil fuel lobbyists. His secretary of state is the former CEO of the world's largest fossil fuel corporation, ExxonMobil, um, a, a corporation that has um, uh, deceived the public uh, about climate change uh, in its advertising campaigns. So obviously um, that means we're, we, we face more of a challenge here domestically um, in the U.S. Um, in meeting our obligations uh, under the Paris Agreement, for example. That having been said, uh, there is enough action that's taking place at the local municipal level, at the state level, um, and groups of states that have joined together, like the West Coast states and the New England states, um, that are incentivizing renewable energy, that are uh, trying to put a, a price on carbon to level the playing field uh, so renewables can compete um, in the energy market. There is enough progress now being made there in the scaling up of renewable energy, um, electric vehicles, wind, solar energy um, is being, you know, there's an exponential trajectory um, in sort of the market share of renewable energy in our economy. Um, and so experts who have studied those trends now tell us there's a good chance that no matter what Donald Trump says or does, the U.S. will still meet its obligations under the Paris Treaty based on the progress that's happening there. So there's still a, a good chance that we can meet our obligations. And if all of the countries, uh, 196, I think, countries uh, of, of the world that signed on to the Paris Accord, if they all meet their obligations, uh, again, there are careful studies that have looked at what the implications would be um, and have found that um, that would get us halfway from where we would otherwise be headed towards, you know, seven to nine degree Fahrenheit catastrophic warming of the planet, five to seven Celsius um, or four to five degrees Celsius warming of the planet, get us halfway to that two degrees Celsius, three and a half degree Fahrenheit level of, uh, you know, dangerous warming. Uh, in short, it gets us halfway to where we need to be. Um, and what that means is that we can envision a path forward now where we can keep warming below dangerous levels. The Paris Treaty alone isn't going to do it, but it puts in place a framework that we can improve upon in a few years. On the next conference of the parties, we can get the various uh, participating nations to ratchet up their commitments. We can now see a path towards stabilizing warming below dangerous levels. And that really wasn't true even a few years ago. So that, that's an important uh, piece of information um, for people to keep in mind. It's a reason for, you know, as I often say, cautious optimism, not, um, you know, not, uh, not Pollyannish uh, uh, optimism, um, but, uh, you know, uh, cautious optimism um, that if we keep our, our foot on the pedal, we can solve this problem. Wow. Uh, you don't see a danger of complacency. Well, the, the only threat, you know, um, to us achieving success in the battle against climate change um, is the lack of uh, political will. And uh, I think it was Al Gore who actually said, you know, political will is a renewable resource. <laughs> and so I, I'm an optimist that, um, you know, we have risen to the occasion. 
many times in the past. Um, we saw it with the Apollo project. We saw it with World War II. Americans have this history of rising to the challenge, and I think we will do it here, and I think the world will do it here. Fantastic. And what's your focus, your research focus now, Michael, over the next coming years? Have you any projects that you're particularly focusing on? Yeah, so I'm involved in a, a number of projects um, and have published a, a number of articles recently in areas like uh, climate change impacts, looking at the impact of climate change on human health, like malaria, um, the spread of malaria, uh, looking at the impact of climate change on water resources, on fresh water, um, looking at the impacts of climate change on coastal risk, um, sea level rise combined with um, intensifying hurricanes and tropical storms. Uh, and trying to understand the linkages between climate change and various types of extreme weather phenomena. It turns out there's a lot of interesting math and physics behind looking at those connections, and so it, it keeps you busy, and if you're a, a, you know, a math and physics nerd like me, um, it, it keeps your, your interest as well. And so you know, I, I teach and do research um, and uh, do public outreach. Um, there are a lot of different things that I, I do these days, um, and, you know, and I enjoy all of them, um, but it means my days are pretty full. Well, I, thank you so much for your time today, Michael. I wish you the best of success with uh, the work you're doing, and thank you for sharing your insights and knowledge with the Sustainability Agenda podcast today. Thank you. It was truly a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. Please sign up at the sustainabilityagenda.com website or on iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.